0: Psalm 127 and look at verse number 1. Psalm 127. The Lord's been very good to the New Life Baptist Church in giving us a lot of children and uh, being good stewards of the Lord's goodness and I think that uh, it behooves us to uh, rear our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I think we do that by As we've talked about already from God's Word, the instruction that's given there, and being obedient to it. Psalm 127, verse 1, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Though children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the Lord or the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Passage of scripture from which we have taken a springboard of truth for two weeks now and probably will for the weeks to come through our series of messages on fashioning faithful families. A major company did a survey uh, not all that long ago. And the survey way it was simply to be made of what are the most unreliable statements that you have found or encountered. And the following three took the top of the list. Now, these are the most unreliable statements that anybody's ever read or ever heard. These are the top three off of the surveyor's list. Number one, the check Is in the mail. Number two. I'm from the government. And I'm here to help you. And number three. I'm a Baptist pastor. And I have just a few things to say. Now I know the third one got in by accident. But we're going to go ahead and assume that it was true. And uh, I do have a lot to say, but I'm not going to say it all today, so that'll, you can rest assured. I have a lot to say about the subject before us because the Lord has a lot to say. The Word has a lot to say about it. And this morning I want to share with you some things, and let me begin by sharing some things that others have said. I got a letter this week. It's from another a Good Baptist Church, a Good Baptist ministry, and I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but uh, fascinating that it came at the time when... Uh, we're dealing with families here. It says, uh, uh, dear pastor, so, so from the, the time Sharon and I had no children and I was starting this ministry, it was my conviction that the family was the most important aspect of this. If, the, if churches had succeeded in seeing 50% of their children live for God as adults, the independent Baptist churches of the 70s would be huge today. Instead, they are shriveling in size And many couples can't even keep their own marriages together came from a baptist pastor good solid ministry this came from a a a a newsletter that was sent out by a christian organization it's here near it says dear co-labors in christ carnal christianity it is if there were ever a contradiction in terms that's it just saying it loud gives me a sinking feeling Yet the painful truth is that literally millions of Christians would fall into this tragic category. Just consider these facts. In absolute confusion, George Barna, 1993-94 annual survey of lifestyles, trends, habits, and religious views. Statistics prove and show that 65% of Americans believe religion is very important. And that 36% of all adults classify themselves as born-again Christians. So millions of Americans claim to be born-again Christians at a time our society and possibly even our civilization and our families are unraveling at the seams. If all those who claim to be Christians are indeed Christians, we have experienced a revival that would make the Great Awakening pale in comparison. So where's the fruit? If as a Christian, we're truly salt and light, being both a preservative and a force that dispels darkness, why do many major trends seem to indicate that our culture and our homes are going down the tubes? I found that fascinating and and quite interesting, and, and I think it's important for me to pull over and park just a moment here to explain something. If our families are going to be what they ought to be, it, it presupposes that uh, last Sunday's message would be taken to heart, which was, first of all, the formation of the home, the formation of it. And that is to say that, that uh, it has to be built on the idea that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior, of the man and the woman who make up the headship in that home. That is, the husband and the wife are committed Christians. And I talked about that thing of committed Christians last week. Let me show you something. In Luke chapter number 19, you don't have to turn unless you wish to, but this is not the body of the message. But in Luke chapter 19, in verse number 10, the Bible says this For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, for a family to be right, for a home to be right, first off, it demands, it absolutely demands that the husband and the wife in that home know Jesus Christ as Savior. It's not only that they know Jesus Christ as Savior, but that they are committed to Jesus Christ. And a commitment to Jesus Christ is more than there just being two people in a house who both own Bibles. It is more than just two people in a house who pray at a meal. Uh, more than two people in a house who have some kind of concept that you ought to go to church occasionally. Being a Christian in the in the Bible sense of, of the terms when it speaks about the lifestyle of a believer is talking about a person who, who takes God at his word and, and lives by it and obeys it and he becomes, as James one twenty two says, being doers of the word, not hearers only. And see, our society has gotten full of people who hear a lot of Bible information. In fact, I frankly think that our country is saturated with Bible teaching. And what we've done is we've heard so much but we've obeyed so little We've actually got comfortable in that situation. And consequently, our homes have become suffered by it. Right? They've begun to suffer and suffer greatly. And in this passage of Scripture, it says one of the primary things the Lord did when he came was his intent was to come to seek and to save that which was lost. Very obviously, because if the family is the smallest and the most important unit that God put upon this earth, then obviously in order to get that unit saved He's got to, or to change and to be right, he's got to save the people who make up the very formation of it, husband and wife. So you have to understand that I think the genius of the gospel is that Jesus Christ comes seeking to save you and me. That's the genius of the gospel. Now listen carefully to this. People say, well, I I want you to know, preacher, I have religion. That's what I'm afraid of. The Bible indicates that one of the unique differences between Christianity and religion is this one point. Religion has as its common denominator and its main thrust, which puts all religions of the world, everything from um, Buddhism to anything else you can name, you name it, Islam and the whole ten yards, all of that can be dumped into this bucket right here. And that is that religion has as its common purpose, its common goal, man searching for God. That's what religion is. Christianity is God searching for men. That's the difference right there. We don't go searching for God. Christianity does not even allow for that. The Bible does not allow for that. The ideal of the Bible is that he came searching for us. And everything and every part of the initiative was God's initiative, not ours. And in religion, that's not so. In religion, it's man sort of reaching out to God. Where's God? Let me find God. And that's why when a tragedy comes into a pagan's life, he says, Where was God when this happened? You know why he can't find God then? Because God wasn't around before, and God isn't the man that he's looking for in the first place. If you really knew a pagan's heart and a prayed person's heart, when something like that happens, he's not looking for God. He's looking for a solution to a remedy. He's just looking for a remedy. He doesn't care who it is. If the President of the United States could solve his problem, he'd pray to him. No, God says, no, I keep looking for you. And the difference between these and my fear is this. The reason we have the home problem we have today is, I'm afraid we in many cases have religion rather than Christianity. Because when we find and we come to the realization that we can't save ourselves and God in his mercy is reaching down to save us and to change us and to transform our lives, then we understand that it's the same way with our homes. We can't make our homes what they ought to be by simply going to a, a, a college classroom and learning a four-hour credit on, on how to manage a family. You can have a degree in management and it won't work in a home. Because the thing is that God wrote the textbook to a home, and he says it has a certain plan, it has a certain process, and every scar that a family member lashes upon itself is probably by the means of a violation of the biblical principles. Now, let me show you something in our, our uh, last week when we took from the text of Psalm 127, verse number 1. I told you that the first point of our outline was was simply that we or they have perverted the formation of the home. And I reminded you of five things. First off, I reminded you that hope and help for the family is not going to come from Washington. And I hope you know that by now. I hope you have learned that. That hope and help for our families, for our marriages, are, are only taken from the instruction of God's Word. And that's a safeguard. God has written in His Word how to have happy, successful biblical families. And uh, we ought to be following that rather than looking from somewhere else and some other source. I remind you that every day that our legislature is in session and every day that this president is in office, every family in America is in danger. Every day. Because he has not done one thing that has helped, encouraged, exhort the family to its right and biblical position. He has done everything he possibly could have done to fort and fight and to, to, to siege the families of our country. I have never seen our families lose so much ground in so much legislation as I have in the last few months. But that's not all I got off on. I got off on the second thing of telling you that Christian marriages and families start with the right choices of a mate. And those of you who have not chosen those mates yet are young people or unmarried people. Let me tell you something. There is something worse than living alone. It is really living with the wrong person. And our society is full of families that are trying to work when you have one saved person and one lost person and trying to make things go in one direction and it just won't work. And they keep crying out, why won't this work? Very simply because you violate the very most basic principle of God's word. He said, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers and we still try to make it work. Young people, don't you dare come to me and say, Pastor, would you marry me and my fiancé here? And I ask the question, are you a Christian? No. Don't even ask. Don't even call me for an appointment. Because it won't flow. I'm not about to get into anything that violates biblical principle if I know it. Thirdly, I told you that in this thing of our Christian home, by the way, if you have to ask the question to that person Probably the question Their answer is in doubt already If you start dating somebody And you can't tell already You probably save your question They probably aren't The third thing I said to you was Don't marry until you're ready To marry body, soul, and spirit Remember that? A lot of people get married physically Uh, A lot of people get married I guess by soul That is intellectually ego Ego wise But few people Get married body, soul, and spirit if I hear one complaint from the women that I talk to who come for counseling, it is my husband won't talk to me about anything of himself. I mean, he won't dig down into his life and tell me what's going on. And, and so that part of the woman feels very much out to lunch. She just doesn't feel in touch, And that part of her marriage is a weak spot, and she'll tell you that. But I also told you that there is a a divine design in the differences of men and women. And that's God's doing. It's not ours. It's God's doing. And he did it with a purpose that we might complement each other and we might not compete. I was reading just this week in a health magazine and it said very succinctly that every cell in a woman's body is absolutely unequivocally different. It said there is no if and buts about it, that every cell in a woman's body, and that is because of the chromosome combination, makes the woman what she is, makes her femaleness, or makes the male his maleness. It's every cell in the body is different. I didn't know too much about that and didn't think too much about what ramification that would have to it, except this. A few years ago, when you went to the Olympics, not that any of you or I have, uh, to compete in the sporting events, but when you went there, there was a time, and I mean this, where you were inspected without your clothes to see whether you were male or female. In the United States Olympics, you had to dress down to find out whether you were male or female. Because they found out there were certain people trying to switch and men getting to women's games and women trying to get into men's games. And so they said, this can't be. And so they just drew a line and they said, everybody will have to undress and we'll find out who's who. Then they caught on to something. They said, is just what appearance is the only distinction between a man and a woman? And a doctor rose up and said, Absolute not. It's never been that way. There's a, there's a test you can take. What's that? He said it's called a skin cell test. So now at the Olympics, all they do is take a skin sample and they can tell from that, whether well, you're a male or female. Oh, imagine that. You mean God put these things together and, and he just happened to put the cells of men and men and the cells of women and women? Well, I'm just simply saying. This world can say all it wants to about switching. And last Sunday's star had a picture of a young man named Mickey that's going to change from being a man to a woman. Good luck, Mickey. Good luck, Mickey. you got a lot of sales to change over. But God has put distinctions and differences between them. Also, it might tell you this. It is one of those things that a woman, and as, as we often talk about, has a difference in her blood. I read uh, two days ago, women's blood contains more water 20% fewer red blood cells, and those red blood cells are the one that t- take oxygen to her heart, and so that's why a woman tires easier and faints quicker. I knew there was a reason for that. I just didn't know what it was. Truth of the matter is that that's not all the differences but that gives you the idea that what the bible says is there is a distinct difference in man and women men and women and the point made is god made them that way and this society has worked itself to death trying to change them back to look exactly alike act exactly alike, be exactly alike and i say to you that every time they do that and move our likenesses one step closer they make marriages that much weaker because God says they're to complement, they're not to compete. And if you keep making people exactly alike, that's what you'll do. You'll start making them compete. And marriages were never intended to compete, they were intended to complement. And I say to you that that's scriptural in principle, and it ought to be carried out in your home. You ought not compete with your spouse, you ought to complement them. Then I said the fifth thing is that to the degree that you're not meeting your spouse's needs, whether it be physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, Your spouse will feel alone. The same aloneness that Adam felt when God looked upon him and said, it's not good that he should be alone. I'm going to make him a helpmate. And so God in his wisdom designed a woman and he took from Adam's side a a rib and from that rib he made a woman and said, Adam, this is now flesh of your flesh. This is woman. This is going to be your helpmate. Now the fact of the matter is that every marriage in this building, to the degree that you don't meet your spouse's needs, your spouse in that area of that life is going to feel a little bit alone and after a while when a woman feels so much alone that she feels like i might as well be alone she says i think i'm going to take a hike and the marriage breaks up how many times have i heard this statement well if i'm going to be alone i'm going to live alone and that's what they say in that office right over there and I'm simply saying God didn't want it that way in the first place. God made safeguards and directives, and yet we still run over the safeguards. We run roughshod over the instruction, and therefore we come up with the problems. Now I want to show you the second point. That's only the first point. I covered that last week, by the way. That was all last week's sermon. This is today's sermon for the next 23 minutes. Look, if you would, at Psalm 127, verse 1, Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh. But in vain. Secondly, the second point. The first one was they or we have perverted the formation of a home. Second point today is they or we have perverted the foundation of the home. The, the Think of it in this terms. What is it that the most fundamental thing about a home, the most fundamental thing about a home, actually is being together. It's being around one another. I mean, what is family? But, I mean, how do you know? When you go down to Brown County and you happen to be there at a picnic lunch, as we were a few years ago, the, uh, the Carters and our family was there on a picnic, and, and we had a, uh, a family of coons visit our campsite. We were sitting there at a table, and out of a hole on the other side of the road came out a mother coon. Then out came a small coon about this large. Out behind that coon came a second coon. And out behind that coon came a third coon. Here's a mother and three coons just waddling all over the place, just enjoying life to no end. And everybody's just gawking and looking and enjoying this family. Now, how do we know that's a family? What if I'd have seen one coon at the entrance of the park, and one coon at the exit of the park, and one coon up a tree? Would I said, I saw the biggest family of coons you've ever seen in your life? No, I didn't say, well, how did I know this was a family? Now, one, because they were together. In this verse of Scripture, we often miss the point that this very first verse makes. It says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Then he continues, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And we often think that's dealing with two separate points. It's not. You know what a city is? Just a bunch of families living together. You know what Franklin is? It's just a bunch of houses that have been put together where in each of these houses there should be a man, a woman, and possibly children. And in, in right down the street there will be another house, another man, another woman, possibly children. And right down it will just go on and on and on. And so all a city is is a collection of homes. That's all it is. It's a collection of people who God, we trust, has sovereignly brought together for a big picture purpose. And consequently, this verse of Scripture says, except the Lord build the house in this thing, people are going to labor in vain that build it. And secondly, unless the Lord keeps those collection of families together, you're wasting your time. So the f- foundation of a family is really the idea of, of being together. You see, God wants you and me to build our marriages, our families, our homes on Him, on His Word and His plan. And then we do that if we follow his instructions that he says, I commit to you that I will keep your homes. You have God's word on it that if you follow his instructions, he'll keep your home. Psalm 127 verse 1. If he keeps the city, what's he doing? He's keeping the homes that are, make up the city. Now listen and listen carefully. You know, you've said it and I have said it, but I don't think we realize what we said. You ever done that? You say something and you don't really realize what you Let me tell you something. You have said, I know you have said, but you may have not fully grasped what you said. You've said God is faithful. Have you ever said God is faithful? I have said God is faithful. I hear a song and I, I play it in my mind all the time. The Father is forever faithful. I enjoy listening to that song. The Father is forever faithful. Beautiful piece of music. And I have let that song play in my mind over and over again. The Father is forever faithful. What does that mean? Let me tell you what that means. We translate that in saying that, that He puts food on our table and He takes care of these things and He his, brings His mercies to our door every day. He's consist, That does mean all that. I'm not going to argue with that one iota. That is absolutely what it says. But let me tell you something else it says. When you say God is faithful, what you are saying, if you really believe what you're saying, is that he cannot begin without finishing? That's what you say. Let me tell you something. In the Hebrew, that's exactly what the word "faithful" means. It means that there are uh, there are no projects that have this sign on them that God ever started abandoned. You'll never see somebody wrote uh, any un or what we might. I guess we use the the, the word. Um, unhewn or half-hewn, I guess that would be the better word, half-hewn rocks in God's quarry. That's why you read, He that began a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Did you know God can't start anything He can't finish? He can't. That's contrary to his attributes. And God can never deny himself. So, whatever God starts, God is committed by his own reputation to have to finish it. So, as I say, that says if I early on commit my life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of my life, And then I pray, God, bring into my life someone who can share this goal and this vision with me and this dream and find that person who's compatible with me that we can work together and serve together in the cause of Christ. And God honors that request and he brings into my life a fine wife. And we then together as husband saved, wife saved, ask God to bring into our lives the right children that he'd have brought there that we might minister to them and we might train them and and nurture them in the Lord and he does that and and he's doing all these things and God has done the whole thing and God's saying if you'll follow my direction I guarantee you I'll finish what I start I'll finish what I start but you've got to follow my directions and you've got to build it on my foundation now there are some things that threaten that in our society did you know you just don't how many and don't raise your hand how many of you if you have let's say uh, three or four family members at home did you eat every meal this week together? Now, don't raise your hand, but just think about it. There was a man got up in a church that's much larger than ours, probably three times the size of ours. And out of the families in the church that had three or more children at home, out of this large congregation, probably 450 to 600 people present, he said only five families raised their hand that they all ate together that week at any given time. Everybody was going in every other direction and everybody was busy and had their own commitments and their own plans. And and reality, the family was a family only in name. They just weren't together anymore. I say to you that one of the things in this society is that uh, we have somehow gotten in step with the drumbeat of the world that loves to fragment families. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you. And you ladies don't get mad at it. One of the worst enemies to come up on the horizon in a long time of the family has been the feminist movement. One of the worst enemies of a Christian home has been the recent uprising of the feminist movement. I speak this with a great deal of conviction. There's no woman in this church ought to have any sympathy or love for any of the program of the modern women's liberation movement. None whatsoever. Because their basis is wrong, their ideologies are wrong, they have nothing whatsoever in common with the design and the will of God. And if you have a daughter, you'll do your daughter a great justice and a great deal of good kindnesses if you'll teach your daughter to hate any movement that so in any way takes away from the divine design God has for a family. Anything that touches the family, any program, any ministry, any any kind of... A, teaching It doesn't matter what what category or what box you put it in or what marketing technique you use. Whatever touches the family in a negative way, you'll be wise to teach your children to hate that system. To hate that system. Because God designed it and it seems like the devil is bent on bringing up supposedly good points, twisting them, perverting them, and then getting them to fight against the family. Let me just prove my point. A lady by the name, excuse me, a female by the name, of Naomi Goldenberg this is an absolute quote and I challenge you go to the library find it for yourself she said and by the way what makes her important is that she's a high-ranking writer for the feminist movement she writes in a in a book an article actually the changing of the gods feminism and the end of traditional religion that's the name of this article she has written And she wrote these words. These are her words. These are not a Baptist pastor's interpretation. This is not a Baptist pastor's exaggeration. This is an exact quote from her book. We women are going to bring an end to God. As we take positions in government, in medicine, in business, in art, and finally in religion itself, we will be the end of him. The feminist movement in Western culture is engaged in the slow execution of Jesus Christ and Yahweh, end of quote. Now, if, if you think the feminist movement was some little innocent organization that was out there just to get some votes on the feminist issues, let me tell you something, you, you didn't read their agenda. Their agenda is not interested in getting a few votes on women's rights the feminist movement that we know of today in this country is one that the devil himself has psyched up and fueled up and got every bit of ammunition he can to fight against. Not, not any of the particular leaders of our country and, and not particularly against our church, but not particularly against this pastor, but against the family God's design. And so all these people do, who quote and go behind the systems simply say, Oh, it's not such a serious thing. If you want to be a part, it's okay. If you don't want to be a part, it's okay. That's not as simple as that. This kind of group is the kind of folks who are writing many of the books and material that we're now getting into the hands of the young people who are learning in junior high school and economics classes what it is to be a woman. Nobody's taking up a Bible and saying, Here's what the Bible says about being a woman. Oh, no. They're taking people like Naomi Goldenberg and they're taking her writers and they're taking our young people into a side room and say, let me tell you what it is to be a woman. First off, don't you ever let a man talk to you or address you in any other way other than Ms. Give me a break. I mean, they'll fight you over a word the way you address them. In many a company, and I'm not joking or holding back. There are several cases. I went to a doctor who I am confident was a Ms. I walked into this room. I sat down. I was up on the examination table. You know that little paper wrap deal where you sit down and they change the wrap every time somebody sits in. I was on that paper wrap table. And it was at the stool at the end. I had my feet on that stool. This doctor walked in. And when she walked, when I saw who it was, I thought I was going to see my doctor. And then they'd give me this, uh, I don't know what she was, really, just a doctor. doctor. She walked in, and when she walked in, I stood up. Oh, sit down. And when a woman tells you to sit down, when you just walked in the room, or she just walked in the room, and she says that, sit down in those terms. You don't have to guess whether she is with this lady, Naomi Goldenberg, or not. You know who she's with. This woman was offended, deeply offended. Who do you think you are type attitude? I've only met one other of those, and that was at an elevator in a hospital going up to see one of the members of our church. I got on the elevator. I held the elevator door like this. And this lady said, I can take care of myself, sir. So the point i made is this. Now, do you think that that's necessary? Absolutely not. Do you think that that makes her any more of a woman than it? Absolutely not. What that made her less of was a kind gracious person whether you be male or female if you have to get into a movement that makes you feel stronger but in the making you feel stronger makes you uglier then I tell you it's time to get out and what they've done is they simply turned this thing around and with the ideal of, of really I think getting against men and getting against all the discrimination and so forth and I don't doubt for a second there has not been discrimination but let me tell you something this is not the way to get it back on the level and on kill. It's never right to do wrong to get right. And that's exactly what these folks have done. May God have mercy on this depraved woman's soul. And anyone else who has this ideal of executing Jesus Christ slowly. May God have mercy. And may I say, may God increase the tribe of people like Concern Women for America who have a biblical concept of what a woman's to do and how she's to live in the home and how she support the home and how her and her husband to relate to each other. May God increase that tribe of people. Look back at Psalm 127 in verse number two. Then it says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, and for he giveth his beloved sleep. That goes along with Psalm 128. The next chapter over in Psalm says, simply says, Verse one, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways, for thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. The point is taken in this context of Psalm 127 verse 2 and Psalm 128 verses 1 and 2 is simply this, that in the building of a home, in the creation of a family, that the, the long, continued, diligent, faithful, labor, effort that you put into it, if you do not rely upon divine direction and divine blessing he's saying is the height of futility if you don't look to god to take care of that family and meet the needs of that family and bless them it doesn't mean you don't work and you don't labor and you don't invest your time as best you can but if you think you're going to take care of your own if you say hey look we don't have to go to church we don't have to read the bible we'll take care of our family ourselves let me tell you you might as well make an appointment with probate court you might as well go now and sign up that you're going to be seeing a lawyer because your day is going to come. Because that verse of Scripture is saying that exact thing, only this verse is talking about the physical maintenance of the family, not just the, the relationship maintenance. We think it's just a physical thing. The husbands, and by the way, men, if you think this, you change your thinker. We think we go out and work and labor 8 to 10 to 14 hours a day and bring home a check and buy groceries and put them on the table. We honestly think we've done all that we're obligated to do. I know some men who go to work and come home, and as soon as they walk in the door, they sit down, and they stay there until the news goes off at 11.30. Yeah, would you bring me some of that tea over there? I'm getting a little warm. Oh, this is not good. Could you put another lemon in this thing? Would you bring me my supper over here? I just, I'm so comfortable. I hate to move, you know. And some men think that's the way life was designed. And some men think there's a passage in Scripture that holds that up as an absolute fact. Let me tell you, men, that's not what it says. We have been spoiled in our present-day society, have we? Say it. You can say it. Amen, we have. I remember when my father didn't come in from the fields until it was so dark he couldn't plow. And when my father walked in the door, he still had an hour and a half of chores that had to be done with us boys. Hey, right, let me tell you something, we have absolutely spoiled ourselves on thinking that we just somehow get married and our children will grow up wonderfully and our wives will be happy and everything will be happy ever after. It's just not going to be the way it is anymore. And it's high time we wake up and say it's an obligation. You men in this audience and you who listen to this tape ought to be people who say, what is it that my wife needs and are her needs that I'm not meeting? What do I do to help her be a more fulfilled woman? What is it that I need to do to encourage her and to to put her in her rightful, proper place? How is it that I go out of the church and I speak to everybody else kindly, and when my wife asks me a kind question, I bite her head off? Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because you've gotten too used to having good people around you. You ought to go to jail for a few days and have to live with some prisoners. You have to go in a place where they don't like you as well as your family likes you. And you ought to have to be made to get along with them for a few days. And you'd come back home and you'd be so grateful for the kindnesses of your wife and your family. You would not ever speak another unkind word. You see, we have grown accustomed to having it our way, doing it our way, and being treated like kings. And all of a sudden, when it gets shaking in the boat, we don't like it. Many a family squabble, which turned into a divorce basis. Started with some insignificant thing that should never have risen up in a family. And I'm telling you, it's high time. We put away childish things and petty things in our relationships and it is high time that we go back to this ideal of what the foundation was all about in the first place and we begin to build relationships that God would honor and be pleased with. And I say to you that this whole passage of Scripture lends itself to that. I read again this week just to remind myself Matthew chapter 16 and... I don't know whether you have a problem with this, but I do know that some people do. And when I read it, I was quickly reminded of several people who had talked to me in the last week or so. It's the famous passage, Matthew 16 and verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I read that and I thought, or what should a man gain if he gets the big house and and he gets the money in the bank and he gets a lot of adult toys... And then he loses his children to a godless lifestyle who never come to church, who never read a Bible, who in fact their marriages, their children may not be good at all, may be sloppy at best, shake at worst. And the whole thing is, what shall it gain that guy? Literally, you have wasted your sweat. For all those hours you worked. That's exactly what he's saying. What shall it profit a guy if he does all that? He simply said it won't profit him a thing. It won't profit him a thing. I read this week that Governor L. Douglas Wilder of Virginia, the governor there, has announced for the first time in our nation's history that they will build a maximum security facility for violent criminals under the age of 18. That's never happened in our country before. We've never built one maximum security facility for young people, teenagers, in our nation's history. They're building this at a cost of $14.5 million, and it'll be opened in 1995. When they ask him, what do you think the fundamental reason why this happened was? Here's his answer. This would not be needed if the parents were not so busy building things other than homes. Thanks again. And I don't even know if Wilder's even a believer, but here's a man who says, I know exactly why we're building this crazy prison. I know why we're spending $14.5 million, and we're going to open up that. I know why we're doing it. Why? Because our people are so busy building things, and they're letting their families go to deteriorating states. Didn't they? I read this this week, and this is a statistic that deals with children. It said every day in the world, 40,000 children under the age of five die. World over, 40,000 children die every day under the age of five, world over. Somebody says that's like uh, taking 8747 jets, filling them with children, and crashing them with no survivors and literally nobody asking any questions. Can you imagine 40,000 children dying every day under the age of five and not much being said about it? Let me say something to you. You know what the man who gave the report was saying? He said, quote, the greater number of these die of neglect by parents who are too busy building for their future and all the time losing their family." And he was even talking about third world countries where parents literally abandon their children going off looking for a better lifestyle where they leave their own children under the shades of bushes to do for themselves. I'm simply saying to you that the heart of man has never changed. It's been the same always. He is selfish. And when the Bible asks would a a, a mother who has a suckling child abandon that child a few years ago I'd have told you probably not. Let me tell you something. I've grown up since then. I've gone to court a few times since then, and I have seen mothers on the courthouse steps say, if I don't see you, it's okay. If I don't see you, it's okay. I heard a a word the other day. I heard a man on a report. Judy and I were sitting watching the news, and I heard a man say, my mother was getting ready to go in for bypass surgery, and she wrote me a letter. And in the letter, she said, in essence, the worst mistake I ever made in my life was to give you birth. This is in America. That's unbelievable, isn't it? How have we come this far? I'll tell you, because we got so far away from God's instruction. We've gotten so away, so far away from what God said. I even, when I became pastor of New Life Baptist Church, one of the first things I weighed was this question. Is our church building families, or is our family, our church, breaking up families? What are we doing? How are we are faring in this relationship of encouraging families? What are we doing to help them? Our first question was, do we keep them so busy at church that they can't be a family at home? I was a few weeks back when the pastor and illusion was made that he was scheduling some events and, and the illusion was made about he needed a few more events to put in places for upcoming days and, and he really liked to fill the schedule full. Now, I know that's, that's exciting. There are some excitement to that. But let me tell you something. When a church has an activity every night of the week, I think it at that point becomes competitive with a family, not complimentary. Because I don't care who you are, you need some time with your family. Uh, If you've tried to find certain people on a Monday night in our city, you know that you can't find them. The Mormons of our city, you couldn't find a Mormon on a Monday night if your life depended on it. You know why? Because the Mormons are committed to Monday night, family night. And every Mormon everywhere is going to be with his family alone, and you're not going to interrupt him. If you need to see the prosecutor, Lance Hamner, on, on a Monday night, you could just as soon get to the moon. Because he's going to be with his family for family night. Mormon says, you've got to have a family night. And they do. We to say, you've just got to be a family. And somehow we are missing it. Maybe it's time we say, no, we've got to have a family now. We've got to have a time where we sit together, talk together, be together, but somehow, some way, shore up the foundation in which this thing was built, which was together. Being together. I say this to you, closing the message, you see. Whether it be a school, whether it be a church, whether it be a summer sports program, whether it be a winter activity, I don't care when it comes if it takes you away from your family and you have to say to somebody, I just don't have any time to do with my kids anymore or I don't have any time to do with my family anymore, my wife and I never get any time out uh, to be together anymore, I'm telling you that what you're doing becomes sin at that point. Whatever it is that takes you away from that commitment you've made to your wife and to your children or to your husband, all those commitments God holds you accountable for and you have covenant to be first and foremost a family. And may I say anything else you have time for? That's wonderful. Did you know that's why in 1 Timothy chapter number 3 it says, Don't you come to me with any person who wants to be a part of a Bible-believing church's leadership team. Don't you come to me if a man can't rule well his own household. Don't you go out enlarging your circle. I'd say to some of you, if you can't take care of your children and train your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, for God's sake, don't push yourself on somebody else. your circle if you can't take care of your own oh it's easier preacher to go out and train these other people to do these other things i'm not talking about easy i'm talking about what's right and what's right is god gave those children to you and it's your nurturing responsibility and no amount of shirking and no amount of housekeeping or babysitting from somebody else's quarters is going to solve that problem and yet we have this happy little occasion where when somebody then comes along and says, look, your children are not acting right. You're not be- they're not behaving properly. And we get bent out of shape. I'll tell you something. If we get bent out of shape at that, then I'm sure there's a holy God in heaven who designed the family, who gets bent out of shape every time he sees you not taking care of your own responsibility. And it gets deathly quiet in independent Baptist churches when you tread upon this soil. But it's nonetheless true. He wants to be a leader in the church. Let him prove himself to be a leader in his home. And the man who God chooses to lead his church ought to be a man who rules well his own household. Isn't it interesting? Some folks would rather serve at church than any time serve at home. And yet, did you know, our church has your children about 1% of their time. You have them about 83%, and the school system has them the rest. Wouldn't it just make sense, instead of having great church programs, That we had good families? Wouldn't it make more sense? If we're going to really have our children to grow up as they ought, wouldn't it just make good sense to have good, solid homes where they spend 83% of their time rather than a place having an exciting program for 1%? I think so. I think so. I submit this to you. There's a story I read. I'll not read all of it. Time is gone. It came out in the Reader's Digest, and it was simply a story about a father's Testament to His Undying Love. It's entitled I Wish I Could Hold You More. Let me give you the gist of it and I'll close with this. August 11, 1986 true story it was a busy day at the Wagner household in suburb, suburban Chicago Brett, 25 was in the backyard cutting the grass 5 year old Brent was helping his father Blair Brent's, uh, Brett's 3 year old daughter and Blaine, his 2 year old son were splashing in a little plastic pool Debbie Wagner was in the kitchen Cutting curtains for her daughter's room. Suddenly, Brent burst inside the back door Mommy, he screamed Daddy's shaking and turning blue Debbie raced outside and found Brett Thrashing on the ground Running back into the house She called and dialed 911 for an ambulance Paramedics arrived moments later And Brett was rushed to Alexian Brothers Medical Center In Elk Grove Village, Illinois Over the next week A number of tests were taken, including a CAT scan. The doctor who gave the results to Debbie was pale. Mrs. Wagner, he said, I'm sorry. Brett has a tumor pressing on his brain and others in his lungs. Her husband had only a few months to live. Brett insisting on going home to be with his family. It would not be easy, but with the added help of the Alexian Brother hospice team and that of his friends, it would be possible. Brett's tumors grew rapidly, affecting his balance, emotion, and short-term memory. But he was determined to leave behind a testament of his love for his family. A little bit of himself for Debbie and the children to hold on to. Over the next several months, Brett marshalled the strength to record his thoughts on videotape. Speaking sometimes through tears and sometimes with laughter, he recorded glimpses of himself, myriad little details, shoe sizes, favorite cars, attitudes about work, the kinds of things, says Debbie, that get lost with time. Brett made four such tapes in all, telling his children that, quote, this will be will let you know a little bit about me, how I feel about things that are important. He sat at the table in front of the camera, dressed in a sports shirt, sipped a soft drink. Sometimes he looked down at the notes he had made. And in the latter tapes, the pressure of the brain tumor, the strain of the medication had taken their toll. He tired quickly, and still he talked on. Quote, Brent Blair Blaine. I want you to be able to understand what happened. I know it will be hard. I'm 25 and I can't accept a lot of myself. Sometimes I feel as if we all got robbed, but certain things can't be changed and we have no we have to have to simply accept that. Just don't ever give up. Try to be concerned about other people. You should always care because there are people you can trust and believe in. Your mother is one of them. Brett and Debbie were only 15 years old when they met at Schomburg High School. She was pretty with wide green eyes. She first saw Brett walking another girl to class. He was muscular, broad-shouldered with an infectious smile and curly hair. Who is that, she asked a friend. I want to get to know him. 1978, Debbie graduated and became a cashier at the neighborhood supermarket. She saved her money to buy Brett his first tool kit. Just before Christmas, he proposed on one knee as she sat at his mother's kitchen table. Most of their relatives told them they were crazy, they were too young, they had no money, they had dated only one another. The pastor of the St. Peter's Lutheran Church gave them a marriage compatibility test, which they felt they failed. In the car on the way home, Debbie cried, Brett laughed. On November the 30th, 1979, in a candlelight service, Debbie and Brett were married. Each had just turned 19 years old years of age, and they couldn't afford a honeymoon. Brett and Debbie, their social life consisted of television, pizza, in the living room. Brett was content. Then two weeks before their first anniversary, Debbie took a home pregnancy test and gleefully let, left the results on the counter for Brett to find. Quote, the nurturing instinct was born in that man that day, Debbie says. Oh, did he want that baby? Quote, coming from the tapes, Brent, I was there to watch you being born. I was So nervous, that's part of being human. You're going to be nervous about things too, you know. You're going to be scared sometimes. I want you not to worry, though, because everything will work out. Brent was born in August of 1981. Blair came along less than two years later. The family barely scraped by on Brent's commission from his repair work and Debbie's part-time income from the supermarket. Goes on to say, and I'll skip a lot of it, Says that Brett rented an unheated garage behind a house. He worked hard and was reliable and several businesses started recommending him. Satisfied customers told others several months after Brett rented the garage, the house in front became available and he decided to rent it and move the family there so they could be closer together. It was 11 days after they moved that Brett had his first seizure. He wrote in one of the videos and spoke of this. Your mother is going to need your hugs, Brett you can help her the most because you're the oldest. You're real smart. I want you to keep learning and growing and to help your brothers and sisters. They're a big guy. You may not realize it, but you are a wonderful person. Blair, I look at some pictures of you this morning and you're cute as a pie, so sweet, so free and independent. You've always had a lot of joy in you. Keep that happiness. Blaine, you're so small, everyone might try to push you around but I know you're going to be yourself. You're a good little guy. The longest tape and the most difficult was the one that Debbie and Brett made together. Debbie, fighting the tears, sat beside him and asked questions. What's your favorite magazine? What jobs do you like to do around the house? They faced the camera, and under the table, their feet were entwined. They talked for almost two hours. At the end, fatigue was evident on their faces. He said, I don't mind vacuuming or doing the dishes. I have to be kind of a In the mood, though, he said, I'm really not a gung-ho cleaning person like your mother. She's always kept the house real sharp. Don't ever forget that your mother has always been a good partner and a good wife. She's been right there with me, and I want you guys to help her and to be right there with her. Just remember that I love you all. In mid-October, money from a trust fund started for the family. Brad and Debbie, who had never been away together, managed to go to Hawaii for a belated honeymoon. They ate pizza on the beach at sunset. Brett rented a jet ski and took it out, saw a giant sea turtle. It was fantastic, he told Debbie. But on the plane coming home, he had another seizure. He was in the hospital for a week. And on Halloween, he and Debbie were around. Four days later, he was back in the hospital. His deterioration was steadily going worse, but he still wanted to be with his family. When I'm going to go home, he kept asking the doctor. I want to go home now, he said. Debbie fought aggressively, and after three weeks, she convinced the staff that she could administer the necessary medication and care for him with Gil's help. So Brent went home. Debbie cooked for the entire family on Thanksgiving, but Brett was semi-comatose. November 30th was their seventh wedding anniversary. He pressed hard to rally to talk with the kids and to keep connected, but he was slipping away. By the 10th of December, Brett was exhausted from the fight. Everyone, including Brett, Knew it was almost over. Gil was there, his friend, Brent and Debbie and their friend Bill. We're here, don't be afraid, Debbie said, laying her head on Brett's chest. Goodbye, my love. She whispered, go to God, we love you. Then in his last tape, he says, I know you're frightened and I know you're a bunch of fighters. I'm going to be watching over you because I do believe there is a God. I want you to know that I'll be somewhere still thinking about you and loving you and waiting for you. Deb, the time has come. It's gone by so rapidly, so fast. I'm sorry it's got to be this way. I want you to be brave. And I don't ever want you to say goodbye, ever. I don't think I'm going to because I'm going to see you again. Brent, Blair, Blaine, when you feel like you should be holding me, hold your mother. It will be like You're hugging me because she's half of me. I just wish that I could hold you more. When I read that, I thought of Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. You love your family? Don't wait until something happens and makes you say the things that you should have said all along. Don't wait and Tell your children you love them and care for them and give them the time you should. That's too late. You see, the people who enjoy roses are those who can smell them. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray today that we might get a new burden and a new care and a new concern for the relationship that we call family. I pray that the men and women in this room might have a a rebirth of their relationship. I pray that they might commit themselves afresh to each other, and I pray that families in this room might be committed to each other like they've never been before, and when all the world turns against us and all the things in the world are indeed against our Heavenly Father, help us to know the and to rest in the fact that we have each other, and that's what family is. We're together, and so Father, I thank you for your word and for the instruction that it gives. And the direction that it lays down for us, and I pray that we might follow those directions. Help the husbands and wives in this room to be godlike and Christlike. Help the children in, in these families to be disciplined with love and care and biblical direction. And Father, I pray, strengthen the families of our church. And Father, we know and are fully aware that all that can be possible only if we're founded upon Jesus Christ. And for that, I pray right now for folks in this room who have never trusted you as their Savior and Lord. I pray as this invitation is given, You sing just as I am. May they come down these aisles and they confess the fact that they need to know Jesus Christ as Savior. They want to be saved. So my Father, I pray, bring forth fruit today in that regard. And others who ought to come, pray to seek your face for their homes, for their children, for their spouses. I pray you'll speak to them about the same. Those who ought to come for baptism, for church membership, I pray you will lead them by your spirit even as we sing. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning about your need of Christ, I exhort you to come. <clears throat> if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you come into service, we'll simply allow someone to take you to a side room and show you from the Bible how you can be saved. If you're a believer and God spoken to your heart about something in your life that's not right, then this is the time to deal with it. That's what God had you here for. I believe that every person's in this room at this moment by divine design. I don't think you just happened in here. I don't think you just by luck showed up here. I think God wanted you here for this time, for this moment, and maybe for this very decision. So first off, if you're not a believer, you ought to come to know Christ. If you are a believer and God's spoken to you about something, this is the time to deal with it. Whatever the need is, we'll do our best to help you find it in Christ. Would you come as we sing together, please? Just as we come, God is would you come? this lady has come to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior, I think there may be some other folks here this morning who say, I need to know Christ. I don't know. And I don't have a living, thriving relationship with Him. Let me tell you something. Life is not really living until Jesus Christ lives in you. That's what living is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, no amount of things that you can bring into your life is going to make your life satisfying and fulfilling. You'll kill yourself trying, but it'll never work. What has to happen is that you have to come to Jesus Christ and say, I know you've been seeking me, I know you've been after me, I know you've been inviting me to come to yourself, and and I've been rebellious, and I've been hard-hearted, and I've been trying to find other solutions, but now I've come to realize there are no other solutions. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. My friend, if you have never trusted Christ, this is your time. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you not right now just slip out from where you are and walk down this aisle and someone to take a Bible and show you from the scriptures how you can be saved. Is that your need? Why not come right now? Would you come? While the organ plays, would you come? Would you come? Would you come? It'll never be easier than it is right now. care and thank you for conviction that you bring to our hearts and thank you that our eyes can still wash themselves with tears because we have a concern